This is WOWDLP Tacoma Park. the Artist Experience Radio Show. This is Sheila Blake, and I'm here with my husband, Peter. And we just heard music by Philip Glass performed on two pianos by the sisters Katya and Maria Lebec. A suitable introduction to our episode today, where we visit the new exhibition at the East Wing of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., entitled The Double, Identity and Difference in Art Since 1900. Sometimes we have a show about one idea, like check out any of our shows on Cezanne where the single purpose is to help you perceive his extraordinary discovery, how a painted image can slowly rise into three-dimensional presence of form in light and air. And sometimes we place two ideas in relation or opposition to each other, like any time we talk about Picasso, creator and destroyer. Yeah. <laughs> so today, our show is about the double. So if you think we continue that big idea about Tunis, after viewing the new show at the National Gallery, we are so excited by the many ideas and themes in that show, none of which, as a matter of fact, are essential to enjoying the art there. Right. Yeah, both of us agreed that no one needs to listen to or read any critics, including us, before seeing the exhibition. Just go. If you don't like one piece, you'll like the next. I think most of our listeners seeing the announcement for the show would be a bit mystified. Most exhibitions have a theme naming an artist or a period or an art movement, a social movement. This one is called The Double. What kind of a theme is that? The curator of this exhibition is James Meyer, curator of modern art at the National Gallery of Art. And I'll quote the first line in his book, which accompanies the exhibition. Doubling is a visual grammar involving the combination of forms or motifs that appear alike and unalike. Okay, that's it. It's kind of an abstract statement. Uh, but we, as viewers, don't have to see the grammar or really any of the other terms used by professional art people. You don't need those concepts. Um, you don't need the education to enjoy the art on exhibit here. Um, I think that James Mayer knew that in using these ideas that so interested him, he could choose works that would interest us and would make a good show, like twins. 
<laughs> twins. When I was in the second grade at PS 117, there were twins in the third grade. These girls, they wore the same clothes and they played the piano in assembly. I was transfixed by them. I went home to tell my mother and she said, I wouldn't want to be a twin. That's me because twins had to share the same talents and intelligence. So each twin has only half the amount. It didn't look like it to me because they could both play the piano pretty well. I seem to spend a lot of time in my life debunking the wisdom that came out of my mother's <laughs> mouth. And the Dion quintuplets. This was a long time before our new reproductive technology, and it seemed like a miracle. The parents were farmers, and it was determined that they would be unable to give these children a proper family life. The uh, Ontario provincial government and those around them stepped in and brought the quintuplets to a specially constructed facility, something between a hospital and a zoo, and began to pro profit by making them a significant tourist attraction. Yeah, our, I remember them. Um, our parents probably didn't see anything weird about the quintuplets being placed in a special built hospital where they were taken care of by experts and tourists could come and watch them play. Yeah, but they might have drawn the line if it was known that they were being used as a fundraiser for the government. Those five girls were a gold mine. A gold mine. And our house had a twin. When I was a kid, on the street that backed on ours, there was an identical line of houses in the same order. Only our twin had a big Santa on the balcony over the front door, so our house twin wasn't Jewish. And when I was young, every once in a while, some science genius kid would bring up what he said was a fact, that somewhere in the world, each of us had a double. If you had a twin, you could really see yourself. And you know, a nerdy science guy just said the same thing on the front page of the New York Times this week, that we all may have a doppelganger. There, yeah, he says, there are only so many ways to make a face, and there are so many people now. What are the chances? Good. And there were pictures of unrelated people that looked like twins, dozens of them. Is this article a coincidence? I think not. <laughs> when you see twins, you're almost compelled to study them, to see if you can see any difference. Well, I knew these twins, Loretta and Marietta. They were teenagers, and I couldn't tell them apart. But their mother said, night and day, they're just different as night and day. And the human response to seeing duplicates, that's one of the f four themes in this show. Uh, Via Selmans has a piece in the show. We talked about her in our recent episode on Glenstone. Selmans found an old chalkboard, a small portable one, like one belonging to a child who went to a one-room schoolhouse 150 years ago with a wooden frame and chalk tray full of age, chalk dust on the board and worn gouges in the wood. Then she made a second one, duplicating the original so exactly that you can look for 20 minutes and not see a single difference. Why is that so fascinating? It's ineffable. You know, you can't explain why that piece by Via Selmans is so great. That was my experience. Although a friend of ours who is a guide at Glenstone which owns the piece, is able to tell which one is the copy. 
and I believe her, but I can't tell. Now, why is this so fascinating? It's ineffable. But answering that question is the joy and the compulsion of our writers, and I guess that's what we are. So the idea of doubling is a good start. We are fascinated by twins, and we try to see the differences. Yeah, I love that via Selman's chalkboard. It's a beautiful object, a small child-sized object, and that the artist copied it as perfectly as possible. And the fact that it's copied makes every bit of it more amplified. Look at the wood, right. the surface of the board. You wouldn't look at it carefully right. if it weren't done twice. Right. The copy makes you look at the original. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So the National Gallery in the East Wing is open again. I'm announcing it's wonderful <laughs> to walk into that atrium. The new skylights look great. But where's the calder? Is it ever coming back? Surely they can fix it. Yeah, I, I suppose it will return. Maybe they're saving it up for a great ceremony. But the atrium is lovely all the same. I think of it as my second living room, my club. Come meet me this afternoon in my club. <laughs> so walking into this exhibit is exciting. It's the ground-level galleries, and it fills the galleries, and it just sparks with energy. There are a lot of lit screens, neon and lights from work, neon in the darkened galleries. So I immediately had to run through the galleries to see what was there. There were two polished copper cones by Ronnie Horn lying on the floor, Andy Warhol's, two Elvises, two electric chairs. It's all too much to take in, so I'll start with the first beauty of my first beauty is a Jasper Johns Two Flags from 1962, and it never looked better. A pleasure at my age is to have seen what was really radical art made in the 1950s and 60s when it was first shown. And here they are like old friends. They've weathered the uncertainty by skeptical audiences over time. And now this American flag appears like a glowing, bona fide, the lighting is perfect. Masterpiece. So now I'm going to use a word that's very much overused, not only in art, but everywhere. So I've never used it, but until now, here it is. The word is iconic. And in this show, I'd love to explore some of those works that have stood the test of time and deserve that description. Jasper Johns painted over a hundred American flags in oil and in caustic and graphite and in stacks and in screens and doubles and singles and horizontal and vertical. He began in the fashionable medium of oil-based enamel paint. That's what artists were using in the 50s to save money. They would get it at the hardware store. And mm. then Flag was completed using the medium of a encaustic in which pigment is mixed with hot wax. And in the case of flag, strips of newspaper and fabric, which the colored encaustic adhered to, they, they would dip the strips into the encaustic and then sort of put it on the canvas. Mm. And, uh, and the encaustic allowed them to be more efficient because it dried quickly and at the same time, more deliberate in, in the gestures. Because pigmented wax sets quickly, Johns could 
add another mark or a strip of saturated paper or cloth, which was usually a torn bed sheet. So this particular Jasper Johns, is this the one, the icon? This one is in oil, and it gives it a luminousness that's missing in the, his encaustics of the same flags. But in the encaustics or the graphite flags, there's the texture, and each one reflects back to each other. Simple. Take an image that's not open to interpretation and do it in different compositions, mediums. Each one echoes the others. It reverses. Color. No color. In pairs. In threes. What's there? What's missing? And is it iconic because of the repetition of the images through the years? Or did Jasper Johns recognize when he was 24 and first returned to New York to be an artist along with Robert Rauschenberg and in the company of John Cage and Merce Cunningham, the force of his art of the future. The repetition asserts the idea of objectness, where the image and the ideas are fighting for prominence. Two painted flags are not paintings of flags, but flags themselves, because why isn't a painting of a flag a flag? Once I read a description of John's, he was a very social guy, and he's living in a loft with Rauschenberg, and he's making an omelet, and he's slapping some paint on the canvas, and then with a palette knife, and then he shakes the omelet in the pan, and then he goes back to the painting and slashes some more paint on with a palette knife, and then the pan. I love that. With John's pair of bronze painted beer cans, one is opened, the other is closed. There's said to be a response to Willem de Kooning's quip that Leo Castelli, the great art dealer, could sell anything, even two beer cans. Those are the kind of entertaining thoughts that come up for me. But if the objects themselves weren't beautiful, they'd hold no interest. Instead, it's like seeing old friends who have been there all along achieving iconic status. And I don't have to bring up those tired old arguments about what is art because it's been there for 60 or 70 years and it just looks great. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD Tacoma Radio. We're talking today about The Double, an extensive show at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. The show is up until October 31st this year. Not much time, so go. Well, right at the entrance to the exhibit is a piece by Robert Morris. It's very old. I mean, like 1960. This might have been the piece that got called minimalism. It's two maybe identical columns. They're gray, painted, rectangular wooden boxes. One is upright and one is lying down on its side. Only afterward. Thinking about it is the idea that there, are, that there are two figures, one upright, one reclining. Minimalism. It's the afterthought that resonates. Yes, yes. Those two columns are right at the entrance to the exhibit. Talk about minimalism. However, you know, the term minimalism points your mind in the wrong direction, I think. I almost hesitate to talk about this piece on the radio because I think it might be impossible to convince anyone listening that the piece is interesting, but it is. You walk around it, and if you're open, there's a strange feeling that I couldn't identify. So I called it ineffable. (laughs) (laughs) But 
you know, the book accompanying the exhibition by the curator and several guest writers from all over the map. The first essay, I think, nails it. Michael Freed, he's, he's local here. Uh, he's quoted as explaining that the columns have the size and heft. They remind you subliminally of a large body, a large human body. I don't know if this was intellectually deduced. I think perhaps Freed recognized the eerie feeling in his own body as it developed and succeeded in identifying it. And once identified that same feeling, uh, is created one level above in, in, in the same atrium, in the stone sculpture by Isamu Noguchi. I've always wondered at its strange power. And now I recognize that part of it is that our bodies react to it and read it as a superhuman body, like a god, an eight-foot body. Being there, an eight-foot body, makes your body react. All right. So um, what are some more doublings? Well, there's Picasso, head of a man with a hat. Can you believe that I actually want to talk yeah. about Picasso? It's really fabulous. It's a paper collage, so a papier collé, of a man with lines that are as simple as can be. A representation of a man's profile. Three cut paper rectangles. Two heads, one neck, and two dots for eyes. Shell ears, shell curves for an ear. And... If your mind keeps trying to take, to put them together, to make them into one image, so perceptually it's always trying to resolve, and it can't. It's the activity that charges in the mind's eye that is key to cubism. And it's so simple, and the quality of the line and the cut papers is so human, so imperfectly perfect. It's brilliant. And looking at the other collages along with Wangri and Brock, they are filled with word puns and visual puns, metaphorical displacements. But this particular one, Man Without a Hat, challenges how the eye and mind processes vision. Man with a hat. Man with a hat. <laughs> and yet, in that same era, Picasso's jitters are nowhere to be found in an icon of abstraction that is too based. It's hard to think of any better image of order than Casimir Malevich's 1923 drawing of a pair of squares, two identical black squares side by side. Rather than calling art into question, it seems to stand for the most stable essence of what art can be. It stands for point zero. In 2015, while viewing the black square with a microscope, Art historians discovered a message underneath its black paint. It was believed to read as Battle of Negroes in a Dark Cave or Negroes Fighting in a Cellar at Night. My goodness. I know. Was James Carey Marshall's diptych, A Piece in the Show, a response to this disheartening joke? Two invisible men naked, one panel white, the other black, that look to be painted as ghosts that remain when all else is taken away. So is this a coincidence, Malevich and Marshall? Or is it two artists, a hundred years apart, coming up with the same idea, doubling over time? 
Okay, but so Picasso's Man in a Hat is in the show because there are four, maybe more, I don't know, at least four doubled lines making doubled patterns within a single face. Like you said, your perceptual apparatus is transforming these lines into a face of a man with a hat. And the lines are just lines, and there are some rectangles of pasted on paper, and we make a face out of them. Why the doubled lines are so cool? Well, that's the mystery of Picasso. I am kind of puzzled by the inclusion of two Matisse still lives because, well, Matisse can fit in anywhere. My house, maybe? Mm. But these small paintings are obviously done either in succession or together, using one to further the other. It's what artists do, work back and forth. So you can try out your ideas on one painting and transfer them to the next. It's really fun to compare the one which is filled with pattern and paint to the much more pared-down one with almost shorthand drawing and bare canvas with a smudged part where the cup handle would be. Sometimes Matisse would do that. If he didn't have a solution to, say, hands, he'd smudge them out so they wouldn't draw attention. But I'm so glad to see these two still lifes. Yeah, so you had a reaction to the doubling of the Matisses that the curator put together for us, even though Matisse himself maybe didn't consider them as a doubled pair. Uh, they were a study and a finished piece. But I had the same reaction as you. It's a Matisse, and it's so cool, a theme and a variation. And speaking of iconic, there's the Magritte, the first artist who painted the idea that this is not a pipe, only it's in French. And here's his painting of a landscape on an easel. The landscape is directly over the actual landscape. So the painting blocks out the landscape, but it's really the same. So the only thing that identifies it as a painting, besides it being on an easel, is the edge of the canvas, just that nice little tacked edge. But the whole thing is a painting. Yes, and <laughs> then the whole thing is a painting, yeah. right? A painting of painting a, painting. a painting. Yes. These are not just ideas. They're beautiful paintings, or the ideas would be empty. The ones that stand out for me beside the flag is the Diane Arbus twins, identical twins with different personalities, the drooping eyes of one girl, the smile of the other. Mm. This is a wonderful, a wonderful photograph. I'm so happy to see it there. The Magritte, the landscape in front of the window, Andy Warhol's disaster, they're all about repetition. I've never seen it said, but I believe that Warhol repeated images to diffuse them of any kind of emotional content. Like you take one disaster and it's a disaster, but if you repeat it many times, it just loses its, its emotional content. Right. right, say it often enough and yeah. it becomes empty. That's right. That's exactly right. So you were talking about the, um, that every now and then there's a classic. Uh, so I'm not sure that I ever saw that particular Magritte, but I know it's, you see it, I know it's definitely a Magritte. And over here is a Man Ray. We're seeing great hits of all the decades. So much fun to stroll through nostalgically. Time is just flowing by. 
um, time is flowing. There's, there's a photo projected large on the wall of a women's rights march of the early 70s, it looks like. We recognize those faces and clothes. And then fading into it is a new photo with what women marching look like now. And the two photographs have identical body placements and repeated expressions. The second photograph is a restaging of the first, but it varies, not, not just fashion, but who is on the front lines now. Yeah, because there's a guy in that. Ah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. You wouldn't have seen that before. So this is WOWD, Tacoma Radio, the Artist Experience Radio Show. I'm Sheila Blake, here with Peter Blake. We're going to take a short break with Bach's Double Violin Concerto, the second movement, the Adagio. One of the most beautiful pieces of music that I've ever heard. I went to a performance at Duke once, and there were two women standing in front of it with their black dresses. The first one started to play and then joined with the other, making more beauty than one plus one ever could. So that's a thought about doubles. One plus one equals something spectacular. And I could probably hear it performed by sixth graders and feel the same way. And today we're going to do something different. We're going to play the whole movement. Normally we play an excerpt. And of course, in the concert hall, this movement is not too long. It's seven minutes, twice as long as a song. Uh, but in, in the context or in the setting of our show, it may appear to be long, but we just want you to settle back and sink in to this beautiful music.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm joined today by my husband, Peter Blake. We're talking about the new exhibit at Washington, D.C.'s National Gallery of Art. The exhibit is entitled The Double, Identity and Difference in Art Since 1900. The show is up until October 31st this year, 2022. So the exhibit is not just an exhibit of duplicates, twins, and seeing doubles. There are three other related themes, reversal, dilemma, and the doubled or split self. So there's a neat image of reversal in the first room of the show by the African-American artist Glenn Ligon, who often challenges white attitudes, next to the two American flags of Jasper Johns is the word America, spelled out twice. But when you read it more than once, you see that the E-R and C letters are reversed. Now the top line is in white neon, shining out, and the bottom line, in the same font, flipped to an upside-down position, is in opaque black metal with light shining out the back of the letters onto the wall, illuminating the wall so that you read the black upside-down America by the contrasting light coming from the wall. I think that you can read this work symbolically. You can, and you should. But I'm just thinking about the the use of reversal like you just described in visual art. Isn't that, aren't doubling and reversal techniques in music? It brings to my mind variations in music. Brahms' variations on a theme by Paganini, or Bach's the Goldberg variations, the flag paintings being the visual equivalent of these greatest piano works. Maybe at the end of our show, we'll have time to do the theme and one variation of the Goldberg variations. Glenn Gould not only recorded the theme and variations, he recorded them twice. Once at the start of his career, that may have been his first record for RCA Victor, and again shortly before he died, a second variation on the variations. That is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Repetition and inversion, that was what Beethoven did. He took one phrase, then divided it and repeated the pieces, then repeated them inverted, then backwards, then repeated, then mirrored, then up an octave. Okay, let's play Beethoven at the end. Oh, gosh. (laughs) We we have a recording. Glenn Gould, again, Glenn Gould, plays uh, the Sixth Symphony on piano. Early in the first movement, Beethoven repeats a phrase 18 times in a row. So this exhibit at the National Gallery is illustrating the same things. Yeah, there's a, there's a photograph of Man Ray of a young woman's face where the, the camera is dropped down for a double exposure, which gives her four eyes, and then it's printed in the negative. And I don't want to leave out Eva Hesse, the sculptor, who dealt in ideas just beyond the edge of my own comprehension. She died too young. And now her work fits comfortably in the context of her time, the time of minimal conceptualism. And it's still so fresh and new. There's a piece 
one more than one. It's a simple piece on the wall. It, it might be a concrete block, but it actually is made out of paper mache. And it has, mm. so imagine just a plain concrete block with two holes as if they were drilled by a semi-spherical drill bit, leaving the negatives, maybe two breasts, with rope coming out of a hole in the center of each breast. And it gently dribbles over the edge of the indentation and casually reaches the floor. And it ends in a circular pattern like a garden hose might. So there are two of these ropes. It's sexual and it's intriguing. And Hess's creations are in a realm of their own, which over time I have come to appreciate and love. You know, paintings and sculpture are really a lot more like music than people normally think. They think, oh, music takes shape over time, which is missing from paintings and sculpture, which are static. But you see that piece of Eva Hesse in time. You notice one thing, and then another, the subliminal suggestions of the body, of the human body, become more explicit in your attention. And the rep those repetitions are integrated into your experience. Well, I'm going to talk about Frank Stella since his, in, his black paintings are part of this show. And I saw a show of his black paintings at Oberlin College in 1956. They were really large and they were badly stretched, so they were sort of floppy, and maybe the humidity in the museum, but they were all black with geometric lines, and I didn't get it at all. And still, it remained with me because I'd seen these paintings, and they were might have been the first time that they were shown. And when I see what they've evolved into, Stella loves jazz, and it's reflected in his work. Rhythm, syncopation, clashing, unanticipated shifts, taking an idea, reversing it. It's a relentless experiment. It always challenges you. What is this? Right. <laughs> you, said, um, you said that they evolved. I mean, of course, the paintings didn't change, but they still evolved in time. And, and you ask, what is this? But... When you start, you start to see the painting as this in time, as you're looking at it, as you're looking at it directly, your eye runs along the paths. Um, Stella succeeded in that dream to not have an object in the painting. Picasso said there's always an object. There's always an object, even if it's taken away by abstraction. Even the abstract expressionists like Rothko and Clifford Still presented us with a, a vision. You could look at it and say to yourself, I'm having this vision, this hallucination. Well, his Stella's Black Painting series were stripped of any meaningful content, and that secured him a spot in history books. Now, you may say, hmm, <laughs> that's all it took. <laughs> but it's the fact of where he started with that and where he continued. And while his recent accomplishments, still they need time to enti be entirely grasped, he's in the future where we just aren't yet, but keep trying to reach. Yeah, but I was trying to say that, so 
instead of being an object or a vision, a single unified vision, it's it's sort of like a process. Uh-huh. Your you your your eye wanders through these paths and and something happens as it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was new. Yeah. And that's why oh, cool. in, that's why he's in there. History books. That's so cool. Okay. <laughs> We're talking today about the new exhibit in Washington, D.C.'s National Gallery of Art. The exhibit is entitled The Double, Identity and Difference in Art Since 1900. The show is only up until October 31st this year, so don't wait. Another theme in the exhibit is breaking up solid cal- categories. Once, long ago, I was at a lecture by Margaret Mead who quoted the common observation, there are two sides to every question. And she said, there are many more than two sides. And I remembered that always. Um, Now, in our culture, we are coming out of the era of strict binaries, two sexes, black versus white. Yeah, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? That now the most fundamental identifications are obsolete. And they were invented, it seems, just to simplify understanding when it really blurred possibilities of real understanding. Simplification of humans is a system of control and has created misery through our modern civilization. And I hope through confronting questioning, we will become free to be who we are. Art is a terrific vehicle for this. There's a Felix Gonzalez Torres piece from 1991 and it's a billboard of an unmade bed with two pillows and the pillows are indented where the two heads had lain and it's such an evocative image it was a theme he returned to a doubling after his lover died of AIDS we're aware now of non-binary reality both intellectually and morally but As sincere, ethical people living in this world, we need to confront in our own psyches, our own responses, the power of our habitual modes of perception. We know intellectually that race is a social construct. We know that this social construct has been used to divide us, maintain privileged hierarchies, but we don't want to fool ourselves into thinking that we ourselves are now race-blind, that we live in a post-racial world, that we don't see differences. We still see race and gender, even liberals. Black people and gay people know this. It's absurd to pretend to be blind, and we shouldn't be blind to the experiences of others. I'm thinking of a piece by Glenn Ligon, an important African-American artist, This isn't in the show for some reason, but it is in the book. Self-portrait exaggerating my black features and self-portrait exaggerating my white features, in which two photographs of the artist appear side by side. They're different photographs with slightly different lighting, but almost identical, so that the effect is that by suggesting an exaggeration that really isn't there, you see yourself perceiving black and white features. You see yourself perceiving. So similarly, Mom and Dad by Janine and Tony is a set of three studio-style color portrait photographs, each 
of a prosperous-looking couple, but you have to do a double take. Well, not just double, many takes. Something is weird in them. On the left, two men in dark, rich suits, gray hair, prosperous-looking, but one of them looks wrong somehow. Then you read the title, Mom and Dad. And the wall text says that the portraits are of the artist's parents in makeup. You have to look a long time to figure out what you're looking at. Who is who? Who is the mother? Who is the father in each of the three portraits? Who is wearing makeup and wigs to appear to be the opposite gender? Each of the three couples looks like a couple. I'm going to leave it at that without interpretation, which will be different for each person who sees it. Gender identity, gender fluidity. I'll be so glad to live in a time when this isn't an issue, but expands our ideas and acceptance of ourselves, because this is how it is, and this is who we are. So... I hope our listeners are energized by our introduction to this show and will want to go and see the exhibit for themselves. Our words are no substitute. However, I I do want to give a shout out to all the engineers out there. I was once an engineer, and there are two works in this exhibit. Well, at least two. I'm thinking of the two works by Ronnie Horn. One is a pair of pieces of solid copper. Identical, of course, each one about a ton, at least, uh, machined into a shape like amphoras. Like this is how copper is meant to be displayed to a future people, uh, the essence of copper. I was a materials engineer, and those two pieces of solid copper represent to me industrial civilization in its machined and crystalline form. And then, at the end, two sheets of gold laid on top of each other on the floor like bedsheets. Gold. Rumpled gold sheets. Whose bed is that? But I think I know. You just described a piece I didn't see, the bedsheets by Torres. And I think Ronnie Horn was referring to that with the gold sheets, because it's right next to another piece of his, the the, the hanging lights. Uh Uh-huh. Very good. That was good, Peter. I hope so. And that's what the best of art can do, communicate the depths of experience, and that we as viewers can do is receive that experience. This show ignites so many thoughts, some of which have nothing to do with the doubles, But that's our experience. See it for yourself. The Double, Identity and Difference in Art Since 1900 on view at the National Gallery of Art through October 31st. And I also want to add that because of the limits of time, there are so many screens. There are uh, videos Mm -hmm. and lit things that we really, it would take another show to go through these. So, okay? Right. Now, stay tuned all the way to the end of our show. We've got that Beethoven queued up. It's uh, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, played on the piano by Glenn Gould. It's a repetition of the symphony in another register, that's for sure. You can hear all the orchestra parts suggested by the piano. 
And the first movement is constructed entirely out of the opening phrase, which is sliced, repeated, inverted, quoted in a hundred ways. Right at the beginning, a phrase is repeated 18 times. Later, in a kind of swelling climax, a variation of that phrase is repeated, I think, 36 times. We hope you like it, and we hope you write it all the way through to Bobby and Clay's program. Stay tuned for our next program, This Music, from 10 a.m. until 1. Bobby Hill and Clay Fink play free jazz and other music that is entirely improvised, no standards, no standard repertoire. Our friend Gail Barron's on alternate Sunday evenings from 8 to 10 hosts Night Ride Home. Gail features singer-songwriters and alternative and indie bands, just good songwriting. In this time slot next week... Listen to Lost Treasures. DJ Mackey spins rare records that never made it to the digital age, including folk, jazz, rock, and international. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.